0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and I have on the good cop, Casey Kress, my partner at our fee-only financial planning practice, Physician Well Services. Hey, it's Bradley Block, otolaryngologist and host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring Podcast. And welcome to the November Friday takeover. I'll be your host for the next five weeks. Wow, Ryan's seat is comfortable. little lumpy here. Wait a second. What's this? It's stuffed with cash. This index fund business is a lie. He keeps all the money in his mattress. Only kidding. Only kidding. I'm actually recording from my home on Long Island, and as you can hear, I avoided the accent, mostly. I interview guests that cover a wide range of topics, all that have the singular goal of helping physicians become the best versions of ourselves in and out of the exam room. So in the next few weeks, I'll be interviewing guests to discuss issues like how to help our patients work through decision-making, what our leaders should do to decrease physician burnout on a systems level, the Venn diagram that is medicine, marriage, and money, being an American physician practicing abroad, and ethically utilizing the power of placebo. I'm so grateful to Ryan and Casey for this opportunity and for their faith in me. So let's start the show. Dr. Talia Miron-Shatz is a leader in research at the intersection of medicine and behavioral economics. She's a professor and founding director of the Center for Medical Decision Making at Ono Academic Center in Israel, senior fellow at the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest in New York, and a visiting researcher at the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Miron-Shatz was a postdoctoral researcher at Princeton University and a lecturer at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of over 60 academic papers on medical decision-making. She is the CEO of Cure My Way, an international health consulting firm whose clients include Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and Samsung. And she recently wrote the book, Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. She wrote it for patients and clinicians alike, so we discuss how patients are frequently overwhelmed with the information we give them. So how can we give it to them in a more digestible way while still being time efficient? How can we tell if they're understanding us? And how can we tell if they don't plan on following our recommendations? And what can we do to address those issues? She also teaches us how to increase the chances that a patient will choose us at their
1: doctor. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians, Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block.
0: It's story time, brought to you by locumstory.com. Today we'll be reading... Docs in Shocks. Some docs are overworked as work works overworked workers weary. Some docs are overstocked, stopped as pandemic tick-tocks keep docs off clocks. If docs are in shock as the pandemic clock tick-tocks, then locums is the token to unburn the burnt-out broken. So how many clock tick-tocks must talk until docs tick-box and swaps to the spoken locum tenens token to unburn the burnt out broken? Enough ticks have talked, time is now, and locums is how. Locum tendons tends to trend as a godsend mend to burnt out ends. For more locum tendons information, go to doctorpodcastnetworkcom slash locum story is your final destination. Dr. Talia Miran-Shatz, thanks so much for being on the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me, Brad.
0: So what's your origin story? What was your PhD thesis and how did you end up pivoting from that to helping patients navigate the healthcare system?
2: Hmm. Now that you ask it like that, it sounds very remote, but actually there was kind of a straight line. So my PhD was about the confirmation bias. Confirmation bias means that when you have an idea, when you have a thought, a belief, what you do is you look for proof that you're right. So basically, if you're on social media, you'll look for the people on Twitter who think like you. You know, that's one way of of talking about it. And that's what I started doing. But as a student, I was asked to teach genetic counseling students on how do people make medical decisions, psychological aspects of medical decisions. And that was wow it's like amazing a real professor used to do that before me not a grad student like me so i I wanted to be prepared i read everything i could but i figured let's see what genetic counseling looks like i need to know what i'm talking about i'd had three children at that point already but i'd never been to genetic counseling that was you know there are some moments in life that are very small and in hindsight you realize they really pivoted your life but at the time you don't understand so here i was looking for the genetic counseling department i mean i see you're in scrubs so i imagine you're in a hospital right now i don't know if you have this experience but your patients for sure do you're lucky if you find parking you start going you start it's like where the heck is that genetic counseling department so i go in i'm like i'm this way, toity grad student 10 minutes later I'm panting, I have no idea where I'm going. I've just passed rooms, say radiation, don't enter. And eventually I make it there. So that's even before I opened the door, that was a lesson in what does it feel like to be a patient? How this takes you to another world. And then inside, I actually witnessed probably one of the best possible sessions of genetic counseling that I could have. Because there was a wonderful genetic counselor, very smart, knowledgeable, compassionate patient, sitting with a couple, really explaining everything she could. And then they left. And I thought, wow, she really explained everything she could. That's so much. Like genes, chromosomes. Not everyone remembers those concepts. It's not always trivial, recessive, dominant. And then all of this is thrown at you when you're sitting there. And really what you want to know, is my baby going to be hard of hearing or not? And is it going to be because of me or because of my wife? So it struck me that there's a major gap between the professional and where they are and the patient and where they are. And it doesn't come from bad intentions and it doesn't come from lack of knowledge. It's just there.
0: And so... You turn that into like a system of thinking now, right? You've th- that was just an example of one of the barriers between clinician and patient, doctor and patient, but it's not the only example. That's just the most common one that we think of too, right? Like we're using physician jargon, we're using technical mm-hmm. jargon when we're talking to patients, but also the example that you gave when you entered the facility. Right. So yes. people at, are at their most receptive to learning and understanding when they're calm, but you're walking into the visit frazzled because you had trouble parking and can't find the place. And then you sit down. So it's hard to get out of that frame of, frame of mind. You're not really in the most receptive place. So you've already given two examples of <laughs> that people have barriers to communication, barriers to navigating the healthcare system. So, how do go from there to that? became your calling?
2: Slowly, I started looking at medical information, how people understand it. I started looking at probabilities because there are good ways of explaining probabilities and bad ways. Now, what do I mean by good and bad? The good means you're more likely to understand. The bad means you're less likely to understand. That's as far as I go in terms of ethics and good and bad. I think if I tell someone you have a one over 181 chance of something and they glate, they their eyes gloss over, they're not understanding. I haven't done a good job at explaining to them. So I started with the information. I started with the probabilities. I went on to looking at health literacy. Then I realized and I love what you said, you said you have a system. That's true, because I realized this is first of all, there are many more barriers than just understanding. There's the issue of the relationship with the doctor. Which is crucial because if I come to your practice and I like you and I trust you, we're in a very different place than if I don't. And when you tell me you have to take this prescription, I either believe you and follow up or I say, "Mm, I don't know, I don't really like this doctor, he didn't seem to pay attention and then I may not follow up. So relationship is a huge barrier. I, start, I, I got curious. That's the truth. I got very curious because I realized probabilities, a barrier. Health literacy, a barrier. What else? And I started looking at thank you letters that people send to their physicians. And I analyzed a hundred of those and I was wondering, what do they thank their doctor about? So they thank them in equal measures for their personality and demeanor as they do for their medical care. But when they thank them for their personality and demeanor, they go into very specific detail. Like they will say, you came to the exam room to take me, to get me to your office. And that was so nice. Or the technician held my hand when I was freaking out during the mammogram. She didn't have to do that. I appreciated it. They go into very specific details. Do you want to know what they talk about when they talk about care? Yeah, please. So they either say good care or great care. And that's really, that's no wonder. I can't say, you know, the stitch you did on me was so sophisticated or you titrated my medication. I, I have no idea. I don't know. Right. You used just the, the right amount of anesthesia. How do I know? I was under. I have no way of gauging that. But I, I do know personality and demeanor. when I see that and I can sort of understand good care, but I'm less specific about that. So that's something else. It's like, that's a cornerstone. So we have the relationship. We have the understanding and then we have the choice. And that's a really funny one. Actually, I wrote about it recently for The Wall Street Journal that when we ask patients to decide and we sort of throw the decision at them, sometimes we're just really abandoning them. Because if I go see the doctor and I ask them, and the example I gave was a friend of mine's sister has allergies. And in the beginning of the vaccination, when it just emerged, he asked her doctor. Do you think I should vaccinate because they have allergies? The doctor said you should do what you think is right. That's not an answer. You're smiling. That's a joke. You should always do what you think is right. How do you know? What tools do you bring to this? So, You know, some people will bring the tool of I'm afraid of the side effects. I'm not going to vaccinate. Is that the best tool you can come up with? Probably not. Is this the best your doctor can do for you? For sure not. So choice is like such a glorified term, but when we don't have the tools for it, we might mess it up.
0: This is something that I've asked of other guests, and I'd like to get your opinion on it. Utilizing tools of persuasion and influence. So if we are someone who has been a student of the science of persuasion. Is that something that we can utilize ethically in our practice in order to shepherd a patient towards what we think is the right decision versus not utilizing those tools? And just as you said, give them their options. You can either do A or B. It's your choice.
2: Right. So two things. One is you can do A or or B. I think you are remiss if you don't explain what A and B are. And I guide patients to ask, what are the risks? What are the benefits? And sometimes what are the alternatives? Right. And that's the flip side of the doctor convincing you to do something. You ask them, you know, what's the alternative? That's almost like asking for a second opinion from the same person. Right.
0: Oh, no. But as at least in the United States, the way we do, we, we really have to delineate risks, benefits, alternatives, recovery. Like as I'm a surgeon, Mm -hmm. These are things that I, whenever I'm talking about a surgery or or procedure, risks, benefits, alternatives, recovery. So that's something that we're always going to delineate. But do we then shepherd them towards what we believe to be Mm -hmm. the right decision to make? Is that the ethical thing to do?
2: I'm going to answer that in one sec. I want to tell you about a study I did with a cardiologist, Dr. Mladen Vidovich from the University of Illinois. And we looked at patients who had just had a stent we asked them whether they knew if it was radial or femoral and whether they knew the pros and cons for each of the the methods. They didn't know much at all. So I think even when you tell people the risks and benefits and alternatives, sometimes they don't get it. So that's just, you understand it, obviously, or the surgeon. For them, it might all be very new and overwhelming. Now I want to answer your more spicy question about tools of persuasion. When I started teaching, I was teaching genetic counseling students, and they are taught and sworn by the religion of being non-directed. And that is, all you do is you present people with the information and they choose. And what happened when they started studying with me is they understood that whichever way you present the information, that's going to influence. That already influences. There is no like purely objective way if you talk about something in a flat tone or you talk about it a bit more excitedly you've just made a difference if you've related an anecdote about a patient who is similar to them who recovered well after such a after such surgery that's compelling let me tell you that's much more compelling than any statistics from the recent new england journal of medicine article you're going to cite so whatever you do you are influencing and it's a responsibility. I mean, you did not go to be a surgeon because you lacked responsibility. That's, I'm sure that's something very pivotal to people in your profession. You want to do good by people. And one of the things is to understand that everything you say and everything you do carries a meaning from the most trivial things. And in my book, I tell the story of my mom who broke her hip joint and we needed a surgeon, right? How do you choose a surgeon? You There's only one person who shows up, you know, you're going to choose them. But his bedside manner left a lot to be desired. Basically, he was making great eye contact with his shoes. And my mom was less than excited. She said, what kind of a doctor is this? You know, I don't want him. So he didn't mean to do that. Obviously, he didn't go in there saying, I'm going to alienate my patient. But had he gone in and said, hi, Ms. Muran, I'm so sorry that you broke your hip joint. We're going to fix it. Let me take a look. I'm doctor, whatever that would have been very different. It's not being manipulative. It's just being probably, you know, for starters, more aware of patients' needs, but also understanding that if this is how you approach my mom, she's more likely to wanna go with you than if you are looking at your shoes, beautiful as they are. Like I I had to convince her, I had to fake it. I had to say, mom, I can tell he's a really nice person. And you could say, you know, that's ridiculous. You're not gonna date him. He's gonna fix her hip joint. Who cares? He could be a jerk. And that's true. You know, medically speaking, that's absolutely true. But in terms of the human connection, she's going to be put under. He's going to be fixing her broken body. And she needs to establish a level of trust.
0: It's hard to trust someone you don't like.
2: It really is. And it's hard. You know, even like is maybe a tall order. And I know physicians are very strapped for time and work under massive constraints. So to get someone to like you, that's a lot. To get someone to feel like you actually care or you see them as a person, even very minimally, that's, I think that's an absolute must.
0: So you said that we've got, we're strapped for time. And I appreciate you recognizing that. But you also said earlier that we may have explained the risks, the benefits, the alternatives, but the patient didn't retain all that information. So what can we do? within the confines of limited time to make sure that they're understanding some degree of what we're explaining.
2: It's really a great question. The second part of the answer, I'm gonna give you the real part of the answer of like what you can do to explain things better to your patient in a minute. But the bigger part of the question is, who is in charge of you? Who is helping you? Where are you working? who is giving you a specific amount of time to spend with a patient, who is helping you or not helping you, convey information to a patient, who is creating materials for you to discuss with a patient, perhaps giving it to patients ahead of time. And I started writing. I was thinking about it from the perspective of the patient. I'm a psychologist. So I look at the person. So I wrote takeaways for patients. Then I thought, wait a minute, do you need to write takeaways for physicians as well? And that goes to your question of how do I explain? I'll get there in a sec. But then I thought, are you kidding me? They work in a system and the system has to mind this as well. The system has to take on some of the responsibilities and some healthcare systems do. And I try to write from the perspective of what's the ROI associated with everything I talk about because systems and companies are per profit, even if they're not for profit, they don't want to lose. Physicians don't want to lose money either. And I respect that. It was important for me to say, if you do establish that report, if you do convey information in a clear way, if you help people construct choice in a way that's more conducive to their health and, and really guides them through the process, you're going to see better outcomes, better patient satisfaction, better patient health, and everybody wins. So that's that's part of the deal. Just say, just to say, the doctor didn't take enough time to explain to me, that's to say I'm not understanding of the constraints the doctor is in. So that's the system part of the answer. The more human part of the answer is that we think we have two thinking thought systems. Maybe some of you have read the best selling book, much more best selling than mine will ever be, by Daniel Kahneman, who was my. PM, postdoc advisor at Princeton, thinking fast and slow. So he talks about two systems with which we think. And we don't, we're not aware of that, we just do that. The first one is system one. That's quick and dirty and not based on a lot of information and not based on a lot of hard evidence. It's much more emotional. The best way to explain system one is when you're hungry and you go grab a sandwich. So grab is such a system one word. We're not contemplating now. The entire sort. So, well, I feel like tuna. That's like it has protein and I feel like it's here. No, you've just decided. And that's great when you're choosing a sandwich. System two is the way that's the way of thought that's much more elaborate, much more data based, slower because it takes into account much more information and a lot less emotional. So, you don't grab things and you don't feel like things in system two. You would think that when people are relating to their health, they would only use system two, but they don't. And I think the way my little story about frantically looking for the genetic counseling department really explains why that is. So I'm frazzled, like you said, and you know what? I arrived at that department just as an observant. I did not arrive there with pain. I did not arrive there anxious with a diagnosis for me or a loved one. So in these cases, people sitting across from you, the surgeon or the physician, they can be very smart, they can be very educated, they can be not smart and not educated, and everyone has a right to be healthy, right? But regardless of the level of education and wisdom and knowledge they walk in with, something about the patient role is debilitating, and they might be driven to thinking in system one terms. And, you know, you asked a beautiful question, very few people ask that about influence so the truth is you can throw statistics at them and you can talk system two till you're blue in the face I think you're better off starting with system one I think you're better off starting with not a lot of information that is really crucial for them to know because if you've given them 20 pieces of information you have lost them mister I mean there's studies on on memory that show that we remember between five and nine items unaided so if you think of your grocery shopping list you need carrots milk and bread you don't really need to write it down if it's if you're also making a cake that day and you need some more you're, you're not going to count on your memory and our brains are not different when we go to the grocery store than when we hear about surgery we just get very confused so you could say but that's that's just the gist and that's obviously true. Ideally, you should send people home with more material. And if you don't, they're going to find it themselves. Sometimes when they find it themselves, they find it on wackyinformation.com. And that's not the type of information you want your patients to decide based on.
0: Okay. So if we're first talking about something complicated and nuanced, it's important to just give basic information, give them a framework allow them to process that information. And then during a follow-up visit, then you can fill in some of the details. They're going to come up with some of their own questions so you can answer their questions and then make sure that you're directing them with regards to what information they are taking home. Although I can't tell you how many times we give people information to take home and it gets lost somewhere between our office and home, but we do what we can. Okay. I think that really answers another question that I had, which was, you know, how do we prevent losing the forest for the trees? And that is forest first, trees second.
2: Exactly. And if you could write down the name of the forest, that would actually help a lot because you speak in medical terms. That's your job. And people may be unfamiliar with that. If you write it down, they can look it up. They can go back to it. They don't feel lost. And I had this experience when I was interviewing for my book, I interviewed an acquaintance who is a doctor. I interviewed her about her experiences as a patient. It was really fascinating. And I'm sitting there, I'm typing everything down. And I don't, so two things happen. One is we don't have a lot of time and I don't want to interrupt her. And I'm not sure about the spelling. The other thing is I don't want her to think I'm stupid. Here I go typing ahead. And I go home and I look at my notes. I realize that I typed bronchitis correctly. Because, you know, that's kind of a no-brainer. And the rest of the conditions she spoke about, I had misspelled all of them. Every single one. So, but I had the misspelling, right? I had a word that was misspelled, but somewhat similar to something. And I could look it up. Had I not had that, I would have been completely and entirely lost. So to write things down for your patients, even just a word or two, that could make truly a world of difference. Now, I I understand there's a lot of frustration. You go in and you're like that well-intentioned genetic counselor that I met with all the knowledge and all the patients and everything. And so much information gets lost along the way. That's just the nature of the beast. That's just the way it is. You know, that's how patients' minds work, especially when given a specific diagnosis. And that's how good or not good information retention is. We have to just accept that.
0: How do we know when a patient's struggling? With, say, a medical decision. Say it's not retention of information or comprehension, but we've given them this choice and they are now struggling. For me, an example I'll sometimes give is fixing a nasal fracture. We generally do it in the office, sometimes we do it in the operating room. But if you've got a broken nose, most of the time it's just about fixing the appearance. You could do it and you'd be fine. You could not do it. You'd also be fine. You know, it's, Sometimes a difficult decision because both ways, you're fine, right? And then the patients often have more trouble with that than if the nose is really terribly broken, then they're like, definitely fix it. No question about it. So how can we tell if they are struggling? Are there any cues that we can pick up on?
2: a great question and you know it's it's a good example at decision making folks really love examples that we call equipoise so basically it doesn't matter what you decide it's gonna the outcome is gonna be the same it's like equal weight so it's a beautiful example someone's nose is ruined completely and they're bleeding and you have to fix it it's like a broken arm it's a no-brainer who's gonna say oh I'm gonna wait and see maybe my arm heals you know it's just dangling there let's let it dangle for a bunch of time nobody's gonna say that right no-brainer But when you have to make a decision, I don't know if you'll know that people are struggling, but I think you can help them. I think you can help them by saying, What are you leaning towards? What are the things that matter to you? So, basically, from what you're saying, I I, thankfully, I don't know a lot about broken noses. I don't have the prettiest nose, but it's just going to stay that way. So, if you are to ask a person, I guess the difference is one mode of fixing it involves surgery, involves an intervention. Another just requires time and patience. So that's really a, a way of eliciting people's preferences and saying, which do you prefer? Which, is, which feels more right to you? And you'll notice that I'm back with system one. Which feels more right to you? Guess what? you described a situation with, there's no like one answer that the patient's going to say, oh my God, I had the dumbest patient in my office today. They chose the wrong thing. Like with the, the broken arm, they chose to walk away. No, it's a decision. And sometimes patients say, well, doc, what, you, what would you do if you were me? The answer is I'm not you. We don't have the same values and preferences and lifestyle. So what feels right for you is what you should choose. I think that's Actually, a very empowering thing because you're basically saying this isn't about medical knowledge right now. At this point, I can't help you as a doctor. I'm not going to guide you toward A, which is going to be better than B because A and B are equally good. So it's really on you. And you know what? You know whether you want an intervention or whether you're fine with waiting.
0: That is definitely going to help me (laughs) with a lot of my conversations because there's a lot, there, there are often times where we come to these decisions these crossroads where both really are viable options they won't lead to similar sim, the same outcomes necessarily but both are equally viable and i like that like what would you do i'm not you i'm not you so i'm definitely going to be utilizing that and probably this afternoon when i'm seeing patients how about patient right put them on antibiotics put them on another medication how do we know if they don't plan to stop at the pharmacy on the way home or ever is there anything that we can pick up on in the conversation that might give us a clue that they're really not going to be following our recommendation?
2: No, that's a really good question. I'm very glad you bring it up because it happens with about thirty percent of prescriptions that they are not picked up. And you could say it drives me crazy, right? Someone scheduled an appointment, came, pay, wa- paid, waited, saw me, got a prescription, nixed it. So I think the best way to go about this is to ask them perhaps to teach you back why they're getting this. So you prescribe medication for atrial fibrillation to someone. Now, atrial fibrillation is really funny in a way. It's a a name that nobody understands. What the heck is atrial fibrillation? It's asymptomatic. And you prescribe the medication that is not really, they're not going to feel the effects of the medication because they haven't felt the symptoms but it stops being funny when you understand that someone who needs to take medication for atrial fibrillation or have the ri- I'd say hypertension.
0: Hypertension would be a better example. High blood oh. pressure. Cause you don't feel right. The silent killer. You don't feel high blood pressure. You're taking your blood pressure medication because your doctor told yeah. you to, puts you at higher risk for cardiovascular complications, stroke. And the only reason you're taking it is because your doctor told you to, not because it makes you feel any different. AFib can come with Good. symptoms. So just, and I, I can feel that the cardiologists mm-hmm. that are listening, mm. cringing to that example. <laughs> so with respect to them, we'll just switch it. It doesn't, it's, we're still painting the same picture, but with a different time. No
2: problem. So when you say cardiovascular complications, is that system one or system two? System two. Exactly. So, cardio, whatever is a thing, it's something, it's, I don't know. You know, it's hard to explain. It's hard to understand. Stroke is something that's easier to understand. So, I think the thing to do is to ask the patient. So, you tell me why I'm prescribing this to you. And they may not come up with a lot of information. That's fine. I did studies where I realized that people know not a lot about their meds. But if they say, because I have high blood pressure and it could cause a stroke, that's a golden moment. Because they understand. It's not you talking, it's them responding to you. I I look at your facial expression. You're like, I'm not happy with this answer. Tell me. Well,
0: because the phrasing of that question, right now I'm quizzing my, Mm -hmm. I'm asking them to repeat back, like, I've just lectured you. Were you paying? I want to see if you were paying attention to understand. So I'm going to quiz you now. I'm not sure how much they're going to appreciate that. Is there a different way of assessing their understanding?
2: Yes. You could say, I want to make sure we're on the same page. This is really important for me because your health matters to me. Now you're their buddy. Now you're not quizzing. You're not condescending. And you were never condescending in the first place because it truly is vital that people understand. And if they say...
0: I want to make sure that I understand. I I want to make sure that I explained it. well. Fantastic. Rather than I want to make sure that you understand it. So you're putting the onus on your... Fantastic.
2: That's what I do when I teach, by the way when someone asks me a question that I already answered four times. I say, that's such a great opportunity to explain this again. That's what I say, because, you know, why not? So when you say that and you're just basically, you're putting yourself on the spot, it's different. And they could say, you put them in a position where they say, you know, Doc, you said the Cardi something and I don't, I'm not sure I understood. You know, it's, I, sh- I should take it, but I don't know why. And it actually makes an enormous difference when they are taking it to prevent a stroke or they're taking it, they're not sure why.
0: Excellent. So I want to make this uh, a little more self-serving for the doctors, not just about helping us help the patients more, but helping the doctors. When people are choosing their doctor, we're taught that they use the five A's to choose their doctor. Availability, affability, and ability. So- As a physician with a physician audience, what are steps that we can take to make sure that the patients are choosing us, even if our availability is Mm -hmm.
2: They need signals. Patients need signals to know that you are a good doctor. So what would these signals be? They need to know that you operate on people like them. That would really help. They need to know about your level of training. If you don't have a high level of training you can come up with a signal that's different. Like saying, building up my practice, I work incredibly hard for each patient, but I love that you say availability, affability, and ability. I don't know so much about ability. Basically, I'd come to you to fix my broken nose. How many broken noses have you fixed recently? How many people have sued you? I don't know. I have no idea. So I'm gauging. And I'm gauging based upon signals. And the ga- the signals would be... What does the office look like? What does the website look like? Are there typing mistakes? Is the receptionist chewing gum? I'm not kidding. Like, these are the things that I walk in and I say, wow, this is a very highly polished practice. Or what is up with that? Like, did I, where am I? Am I in Walmart or am I not in a physician's practice? So, all
0: of those have the common thread of authority. So, these are all things that establish the physician as being. And authority. So that's, is that the direction that you're taking that? Interesting. That's what I'm taking. Interesting.
2: We haven't even gotten to authority. Authority is the way you look, the way you dress. I have a good friend who's a rheumatologist. She's shorter than me and I'm not a tall woman. And she has a squeaky little voice. So she has trouble establishing her, her authority because people want you to sound like a doctor, sound like you know what you're talking about sound like you have a deep voice. It's incredibly unfair, especially toward women, but they're gauging, they're gauging ability. So authority comes with you explaining, using medical terms, but also using perhaps hints of who you are, how many times you've performed this procedure. And when that doctor was speaking to my mother, I could tell he had done this procedure numerous times. And that was so. that's what sold me on him. So I don't know that coming in, but if your practice is clean and you look polished and you are pleasant to me and you are telling me things like about your success rate, and that's very tricky. And I know that because that sometimes isn't very high. It depends on the type of patients you see. When you explain the procedure to me and you maybe send me home with a way that I, with something that I can take away and I can look at and maybe it's lost, maybe it's not. You seem professional, you know, it's, I could see doctors being really angry when they say that you seem professional. It's like, what do you mean? I seem professional. I've been operating for the past 30 years. Who does she think she is telling me I need to seem professional? That's stupid. Maybe, maybe it's stupid. No, it doesn't. It's not at the core of your medical practice, but your patients can't know how good you are unless, unless they gauge this from you. And it's hard. And I can see that it's hard. And sometimes it's hard because you say, I'm a really good doctor. Why do I need to sell myself? The truth is because people don't know that you're a really good doctor. Unless they've heard about you from everyone. They're like, oh, my God, Dr. Brad, I've got to go to him. He's the absolute number one. That's phenomenal. But if you're not there, then you have to establish your authority. And you have to work at it. That's truth. That's part of the work. It drives.
0: There's some theater that goes into what we do. And I think it's important for physicians to acknowledge that, right? Like you might be the authority, but they don't know that. So there there need to be some cues that inform them that you are an authority. Or if you're not, if you're not, if you're one of a thousand people in your area that do the same thing, but you're the one that conveys the authority the best, then you're going to be the one that gets the the most patients. So there's some theater. I I had a patient. And so I not violate HIPAA, I'm just going to say I had to pull something out of a hole somewhere in their head, right? Could be ear, nose, or throat. And I could have just grabbed it and pulled. But there were a couple of things that I needed to do first to make them more comfortable with the procedure. And me, even though it was very technically, did not require a lot of skill, very low risk thing to do. But and I, I, there were residents there. So I explained to the residents that this These are the things that we're doing in order to make the patient more comfortable, even though technically it's not necessary for everything to turn out fine. But, you know, we need their participation. So these are the things that we're going to do. So there's some theater to it. Acknowledge it, embrace it, utilize it to your advantage.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So I love that you say theater. It's very honest. And I think it goes to the decor of the office and the cleanliness and even the, the way you dress and whether or not you combed your hair in the morning or, you know, all of those things, but some things are very pivotal. If someone is going to pull something out of a hole in my head, I need to know they're not a bozo. I need to to know I'm not running away before they touch me and that they're serious. So actually the relationship and the trust there, they're, an essential first step. They're not redundant. They're crucial. And you know, along with that, there is some extent of theater of like how much you, how much authority you exude, and how much fanfare you elicit. That's fine. But that's guess what? That's also important.
0: I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the book. But before we get to that, is there uh, one more point that you'd like to co- convey to physicians that will allow them to help? their patients better navigate the healthcare system and medical decision making.
2: I think the dinner party rule. Oh, the dinner party rule. That's a really creepy one, but I absolutely love that. So the dinner party rule was established by, I forgot the name of the doctor. I think it's Sam. I forget the last name. And what he said was he treats coma patients, treats comatose patients. And he said, when you go in, refer to the patient in their name, introduce yourself and tell them what you're going to do. And it's amazing because he created this rule for comatose patients. And you could say, come on, really? That's a waste of time. That's an urban legend. They're not there. Why do I need to say, hi, Mr. Levy, I am Mr. Box. I'm going to do this and this to you. Because they're human. And that's how they deserve to be treated. And I think that's so powerful. If you do this with comatose patients, you should totally do this with everyone. And that's, it does not take a long time at all, but it does establish some human connection. And if I don't know who you are, and you did not say, hi, Dr. Talia, or hi, Ms. Moreau chats and you just show up and you're about to pull something out of my nose or my ear or my whatever, I'm gonna freak out. Legitimately, I'm going to freak out. So the dinner party rule is just good decorum. What I love about it is that even if you follow it, it will not take you more than six seconds. And it will make a huge difference because otherwise you're approaching me. I'm like, who are you? What do you want? That's going to take infinitely longer.
0: And there was something that else that you were going to say before I rudely cut you off. I apologize.
2: No, no, I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. Okay. I'm happy to talk about the book. Yes. Tell us about the book. So the one book you have got to read and you have got to have everyone you love read as well. It's called Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. So you have to read it if you're a physician because you've got to understand how people are making decisions and choices and how they feel when they see you. And make some of it you might feel intuitively, but this is gonna be a massive eye-opener with things like system one or fear appeal and the way people are so driven by emotions and what why they make such a mess of information. You absolutely have got to read it because there, are, as I said, there are takeaways for doctors. There are ways for you to do things better that's not going to take much longer, if at all, but will make your patients significantly happier and more likely to adhere to your, to whatever you're saying. Now, why do you need to t- buy it for your loved ones as well, if they're not a physician? Because we're so obsessed with hacking everything. Hack your health, hack this, hack that, hack your push-ups. We're so looking for for tricks. This is a great way to hack the way we deal with our health. And everyone's dealing with their health all the time. COVID really threw it at the center of our lives. But even without it, you floss, you get your flu shot, you do a bunch of things every single day that are related to your health. You take vitamins or not, you know, you tend to a sore tendon or not. And you do that all the time and you want people to do that in a great way. So I really, I insisted the publisher that the cover of the book is like in red and blue and it looks nice and it doesn't look like a sick people book because I don't want people to think about it as something that they'll read if they get sick. I want them to think about it as something that they read because they are people and they need to empower themselves.
0: Thank you for the research that you've done, for writing such an important book and for taking the time to talk to us about it. An
2: absolute pleasure. Thank you to everyone for listening.
0: For doctors, the story has changed. Visit doctorpodcastnetworkcom slash for unbiased information about locum tenens, and see if it should be your next chapter. And remember, locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend mend to burnt-out ends. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers.